I'm not gonna lie, we knew this would be the big one. Thank you guys for coming to the service. Here's what we need you to do. If there is an empty seat, scooch in, okay? Scooch in, and then same thing, if you can scoot to the sides, even if there's just one seat open, uh, we'd love to have it. Hey, thank you guys for coming today. If you got your Bibles, open to Philippians chapter two, and then we'll continue in Genesis chapter 40. Philippians chapter two, and then Genesis chapter 40. I need to apologize to you. For those of you who've been around for our Joseph study, we are creeping through Genesis 40, and I apologize. We're only gonna knock out three more verses today. It's just so rich, and Joseph, in his life, Joseph is navigating a lot of the things that we navigate in this city as well, and so uh, it's just very, very rich. Today is gonna be a very basic lesson that hopefully for some of you will wake you up coming into 20. 2020 uh, to realize that you have an opportunity to really be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ to the world around you. If you got your Bibles again, Philippians 2 and Genesis 40, we'll start in verse 1 of Genesis 40 uh, after Philippians 2 verse 3. Um, our study today starts with this question. Has anything delicate ever survived multiple moves in your life, right? Has anything delicate ever survived multiple moves? Laura, I can see it on your face. It's like grandma's china or something. I mean, something that has survived all these different moves that you've made. Some of you moved across country. Some of you have moved multiple times here in this city because you constantly have to get the move-in special at the apartment complexes, right? I mean, some of you know what I'm talking about there. Uh, you just are trying your best to make sure uh, that, you, uh, that you get the stuff moved. And for us, because we have four young kids, for something to survive, at this point is an act of Almighty God. I mean, it just kind of is the way it goes. The more delicate it is, the less likely it is to make it. But we have a very special item that has survived. Shelby, if you don't mind, please very, very carefully hold this up. This is my wife's Texas Tech snow globe, okay? Now, here's the deal. In a house with four young children, and our kids right now are nine, eight, five, and two. And so for that thing to have survived is an absolute miracle. And so uh, my wife got that her senior year. And some of you know Keisha. Keisha's one of our head greeters uh, that's out front. Keisha and Autumn were roommates in college at Texas Tech. And Keisha has the exact same snow globe. Now, here's the deal. We've moved all these different places, but that snow globe has somehow, some way survived. If you've ever seen a snow globe before, a snow globe has its own little ecosystem, right? You've got all these little things on the inside. In the case of our snow globe, it's got sites at Texas Tech University, and then it has a little miniature stadium in there, and on the scoreboard is Texas Tech 45, Texas A&M zero. So for any of you Aggies in this room, I'm sorry, direct your hate mail to me. All right, anyway, moving on. So it's got all these different things in it, but on the inside, if you shake up the snow globe, the snow or the glitter or whatever's on the inside begins to swirl about. Some of you with really sick minds, you create the vortex, you know, on the inside, like it looks like a tornado's rolling through where you just swirl it up, but you just have this, its own ecosystem. On the outside is the real world, but inside the snow globe, it can be very intense and just very, again, isolated. Now, here's what's interesting. Our lives are a lot like a snow globe. There's a whole lot of stuff going on on the outside, but sometimes we can get trapped in selfishness and think that our little ecosystem, that our little world is the way that it is everywhere. When the truth is, it's just indigenous to you. Now, praise God, we serve a God that cares about you as the individual. But he has called us to discipleship, to see beyond ourselves, and to see towards the needs of others. Look at what Paul has to say about that. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, Paul writes, do nothing, underline do nothing, out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility... 
consider others better than yourselves. He says, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Stop right there for just a minute. I want you to notice something. And by the way, I was talking to a guy the other day, and I said, you know, I think if you could sum up 2010 in a slogan, it might be treat yourself. You know what I mean? Okay, the idea of you do for you, then you do for others. Now, can I tell you this? It's not biblical. Jesus, or excuse me, Paul says right here, our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but consider others before you consider yourself. It's a, it's a godly thing for a disciple to do, to see past themselves, past their snow globe, and all the stuff that's buzzing around in their own life so that they can be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ to the broken and dying world that's around them. So back in the day, um, when I was working as a student minister, <laughs> we went to Home Depot and we got one of those big, massive snow globes. You remember the massive snow globes? So this thing was about two hand lengths for me. I, I have short arms, okay, but it's about two hand lengths from here to the other side. And then it has a leaf blower and a whole bunch of those packaging peanuts on the inside and then like a little snowman in the middle. And so you turn it on and the leaf blower blows and man, it just creates this, this big life-size snow globe. So for three weeks, I'm staring at this thing and you know what I'm thinking every time I see it? I want to climb in that snow globe. I'm thinking over and over again, I just want to climb in that snow globe. And finally, my wife looks at me and she's like, you want to get in the snow globe, don't you? And I'm like, yes, with all my heart, I want to get in the snow globe. I just want to see what it's like. She goes, okay. Well, on the back, it's got this big, massive human-sized zipper, okay, that you can unzip, and then you hold the packing peanuts in, but you climb in and then zip it up, and then I looked at my wife, and I mean, you're insulated. It's really thick plastic. So I'm insulated in there. So I give her the thumbs up, and I'm like, start the, start the leaf blower, right? All of a sudden, she gives me the thumbs up back, flips it on, and I mean, on the inside, it's so loud, but it was awesome for like the first few minutes, right? I'm in there, and it's just, I mean, the packing peanuts are flying around. This is before cell phone videos, thank the Lord, okay? But I'm inside the snow globe. They're doing all this, and I mean, my wife's outside laughing. Well, then, finally, I'm like, all right, turn it off. Well, she can't hear me. And so I'm like, hey, turn it off. And she's like, yeah, it's great, it's great. And I'm like, no, no, turn it off. And so then finally, I'm trying to like bust my way out, but I was trapped inside that snow globe for a good three minutes, and my wife is cruel. Anyway, no, that's all I'm saying. <laughs> now listen, selfishness is staying in your snow globe, is thinking that the rest of the world is just like your little situation and you thinking that the rest of the world is just as, as chaotic and just as, as crazy as your little world is. And here's the deal. God cares about your little world. But he is also at work in the macro all around us at the same time. If you're taking notes, write this down. Self, uh, selflessness should not be uncommon in a disciple's walk. Selflessness should not be uncommon in a disciple's walk. We get weird when we think that the world is all about us. It makes us a little bit strange. So back in the day, I was in middle school and uh, had a great middle school teacher that encouraged us to go to our grandparents or the older generation that were around us and ask them their story. I graduated high school in 1999, and so there were a whole bunch of our grandparents that, uh, that fought and served in World War II. And so my grandfather was just a little bit younger. Uh, he had served as a hospital administrator in the Korean War. And I'll never forget, I go to sit down with my granddad, 
and he's telling me these different stories. I've got a tape recorder. I'm recording what he's saying. And I'll never forget one of the stories that he told. He was from a little town called Blue Ridge, uh, uh, Blue, uh, Blue Ridge, Texas. And uh, his, uh, uh, his wife, my grandmother, they got married when my grandmother was only 17. And my grandmother's from a little community called Vera, Texas. 300 people in the entire township of Vera, Texas. Well, right after the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, my granddad goes to a town hall meeting with my grandmother in Vera, Texas, 300 people. And this is the story that my granddad told me. He said, right after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, he said, everyone was on edge. And he said, a man walked up in the town hall meeting, packed town hall for Vera. And he said, at the town hall meeting, the man said, I'm going to say what we're all thinking. Vera's going to be next. (laughs) That was his honest statement. Vera's going to be next. My granddad said at that point, the entire crowd amened and nodded their heads like what he had said made a whole lot of sense. My granddad scratched his head and went, are you kidding me? The Japanese went, we took out Pearl Harbor, and now we logically must put all of our resources into taking down Vera. I mean, that's the next step, right? But listen, the idea becomes, it's all about us. We are the most important place in the entire world. We clearly would be the place that would be the next big target when it comes, uh, when it comes to a, a military action. Now listen, I tell you that to say this, when you are a Christian and you are enveloped in that selfishness, it looks and sounds weird. People look at you and they don't quite understand because you're living in great faithlessness to believe that God is not the God of the macro and the micro. We turn into this weird kind of selfish beast. That's why Paul says your attitude should be the same as that of Christ. Do nothing, not just most, not just some. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Now here's the deal. Living selfless is, a, is a, a sermon that pastors have preached since the beginning of churches. But sometimes we forget what that looks like. And Joseph and his story, we're going to focus on the lead-in to the amazing dreams that are going to change the rest of his life. But it starts with him looking at the outside world around him with selfless eyes. If you're taking notes, write this down. How do we go about putting others before ourselves? How do we go about putting others before ourselves? If you've got your Bibles now, open to Genesis chapter 40, and we're going to start in verse 1. Genesis 40, and we're going to start in verse 1. Now, just for the record, if there was ever a guy who had reason to live in his snow globe, it was Joseph. Remember, Joseph has had this dream, and Joseph has seen that the Lord is going to put him on a pedestal, that he's going to be in a position of power and leadership to help people. But that's not happened. Instead, his brothers sell him into slavery. Instead, Potiphar's wife testifies against him falsely, and now he's wrongfully imprisoned and just trying to serve out his days in a dungeon. Now, here's the deal. Joseph could have walked into each day going, in my snow globe, God had this big, vast plan for my life, and it hasn't panned out. I don't care about the world around me. Man, my brothers sold me into slavery. I've got a past and hurt than baggage that I'm carrying with me, so I don't care about the world around me. Man, I have been wrongfully accused, and I'm in prison for a crime I did not commit, so I don't care about the world around me. He could have even said, you know what, I'm tired because I didn't get a good night's sleep in the dungeon, so why should I care about the world around me? But Joseph was a true disciple. He was a true Yahweh follower, 
And in the passage we're about to read, God brings across his path something that will not just change his life, but that will affect the known world at that point because he saw beyond himself. Look at Genesis 40, and we'll start in verse 1. Recap of last week. It says, Sometime later, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their master, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was angry with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in the custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the same prison where Joseph was confined. So the captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph, and he attended them. After they had been in his custody for some time, each of the two men, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were being held in prison, had a dream that same night, and each dream had its own meaning. Now look at verse 6. Joseph doesn't know that they've had a dream. But watch what he does. This is what it looks like to live beyond yourself, to step out of the snow globe and be a part of what God is doing in the world. Verse six, when Joseph came to them the next morning, he saw that they were dejected. Underline and highlight that verb there, he saw. I told you it's gonna be simple today. Joseph, if he's in the snow globe, doesn't notice the pattern change that's taken place with the men that are underneath his care. But because Joseph is engaged with the world around him, he sees that a change in the pattern has taken place, and then he is able to act accordingly. If you're taking notes, write this down. How do we go about putting others before ourselves? Number one, first and foremost, we must genuinely see people. We must genuinely see people. I see someone, by the way, in this room who's incredible at that, and that's my friend Ryan Butler. Ryan's a realtor in the community, and I'll tell you what, this is a guy who is a great realtor because he sees not just what's at face value, but he can see through to perceive need. That's a gift that God has given you, but that all of us are called to do. There's a point where we can see people, but do you really genuinely see them? Do you really genuinely see a change in the pattern of behavior so that you can then move and act accordingly? Sometimes we can get to moving so fast that we just assess in an instant, but we don't have time to really stop and process what someone's going through or what it is that they're navigating. If you're taking notes, write this down. Consistent interaction allows us to observe positive and negative changes in a person's life. Consistent interaction allows us to observe positive and negative changes in a person's life. It's the reason. You may see your spouse every single day, but the question today is, do you really see them? Do you see what they're navigating? Do you see what their struggles are, what phase of life they're in? When it comes to your mom or dad or brother or sister living back home or grandparent, do you really see them? Or is Facebook, is Instagram the only thing that you're able to see. I am yet to find an Instagram or Facebook that is truthful, all right? Fully, have to, fully truthful. Guys, do you see them or do you genuinely see them? These are people that are across your path constantly where you stop and you really process what it is that they're going through. I'll give you an example. I've told you over the years that I promised to tell you the good, the bad, and the ugly of my story times when I'm a hero and then times when I'm a chump. This is a chump story, okay? So back in the day, we came on a mission trip to Washington, D.C., brought more than 40 high school students. And I'll never forget, we plugged in with a ministry that had us feeding the homeless and bringing blankets to them. And it was 
incredibly special. I'll tell you why. I grew up in suburban Texas, went to school in suburban Oklahoma, and then to come here and to see urban poverty like I had never experienced before, it floored me. It leveled me. And I'm telling you, I went through a stretch where like some of you in this room who maybe had a similar story, I came here and I wanted to help, but I just didn't know how. And there was poverty and homelessness where I was from, but there was just so much that was in front of my eyes when I came here. I'll never forget, I got a group of students, and the ministry that we were a part of had us buying breakfast sandwiches and offering them along with a coat or, a, uh, or with a, a blanket to the homeless in the park, to people living in the park. And I also began to learn over time that just because someone was living homeless didn't mean that they didn't have a job or didn't mean that they didn't have uh, uh, situations and maybe even mental health issues that they were navigating. And all of a sudden, the world became to get bigger and bigger. But in the beginning... All I knew was I was supposed to give a breakfast sandwich to someone and hand them a blanket. One day, everything changed. I went on a mission trip, and while I'm seeing this level of poverty, we had bought a whole bunch of sausage biscuits at McDonald's. We also had gotten the blankets and the jackets. And we had a young man who was a senior on the trip that said, let me go first, and I'll show people how to do what you've been teaching us to do. I was the leader I was teaching, but I was in my early 20s. I was very young. So we pull up right to one of the parks near the White House, and up against the side of the building is a woman wearing a head covering and sitting up against the wall. I remember I see this woman as someone who is in need, but I didn't really see her. I look at my student, and I said, why don't you take her the sausage biscuit and the blanket? He says, I will, and I coach him up. We gotta be willing to give. He walks up. He says, ma'am, would you like a breakfast sandwich? She said, oh, I really would, young man. I've been so hungry. Hands her the breakfast sandwich. He then says, can I get you a coat? She goes, oh, this is just wonderful. Hands her the coat, says again, this has been given to you in Jesus' name. And she just, again, it was emotional. Well, he turns around to walk back to the van. And man, we're all like, yeah, way to go, man. You did great. Everybody's smiling. He's smiling, feels like it was a great moment. And he climbs back in the car and we're about to move on to the next stop. All of a sudden, the woman steps up, and she goes, excuse me, sirs? She knocks on the window. Sirs? We roll down the windows with smiles on our faces, and she goes, thanks for nothing. Spikes the sandwich on the ground, and then gives us the finger, and then goes and sits up against the wall. I didn't get it. I look at the students, and I go, well, some people just won't receive help in this world. Some people just behave this way and it's just they won't receive help. And all of a sudden, it was about a week later, and all of a sudden, it took a week, but I saw her and I went, she was in a head covering. We offered her a pork product. We had insulted this woman in Jesus' name. And all of a sudden, I saw her for the first time, even though I was back in Texas at that moment. Now listen to me. To see someone and to genuinely see them can be the difference in a true disciple's walk and in somebody just checking it off a list. There's some of you that if you're really honest, you're the type of person that when you stand before God and you go, I deserve a well-done, good and faithful servant from you, so uh, here's my resume that has all of my NHS hours, okay, all those different things that I did that were good on my resume. I served with these organizations. I helped with these different groups of people. I served on this person's campaign. I worked with this specific group. I went to this church, and the Lord's going to look at you and say, but you didn't see anybody. 
You don't get no well done from me. You didn't see anybody. You were there, but you weren't really there. You were in your snow globe. You were trapped and you missed it. How does Jesus see the world? Matthew 9, 36. Jesus is looking out across of really hurting and needy people. And it says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Why? Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. How does Almighty God see us? How does he see the world? Not with the vision of righteous judgment, but he sees us as a shepherd seeing us as harassed and helpless. What is the goal of the shepherd? To lead, feed, and protect the sheep. When God sees the crowds, he has compassion on them. And our attitude should be what? The same as that of Christ Jesus. Do you really see the world around you? Or are you just checking it off a list so you can get a good spot on your resume? It begs the question, do you see people like Jesus saw people? Do you see people like Jesus saw people? Let's keep moving. Now look at Matthew, or look at Genesis chapter 40. And let's jump into verse 7. So it starts off and says, he saw that the men were dejected. Now verse 7, look at this. So he asked, underline he asked, Pharaoh's officials who were in custody with him in the master's house, look at this. Why are your faces so sad today? Stop right there for just a minute. It is not enough to genuinely see people in their struggle. The second point, how do you go about putting others before yourselves? Number two, we must initiate interaction. We must initiate interaction. What happens here is Joseph sees that there's a problem, but then the separate verb is, so then he went to them and asked them, how's it going? Are you okay? I want to teach you a little ministry secret here. There is a two-word question that will absolutely change your relationships. Are you ready for this? You good? You good could save your marriage. You good could rectify your entire working situation. You good could change the dynamic of your relationship with your parents and the people in your hometown. Do you know what you good is? You good is you saying, I see a change in your pattern of behavior, and I am inviting you to invite me into your snow globe. I am inviting you to invite me into your world. You good is a powerful thing. In fact, now some of you are going to be like, well, pastor, you totally you gooded me. Okay, I do that sometimes. I'm giving you insight. You good is me saying, I notice a change in your pattern of behavior. Is there anything you want to talk about? Is there anything you want to say? When you see a change in someone and you don't take the time to ask them, you good? What you have said to them is, my world is way more important than your world. And when you're married to that person, that's a pretty awful place to be. Somebody who wouldn't ever want to climb into your world. When you live with that person as your roommate, that is a pretty awful roommate situation to be in. When you work with that person, it makes the job situation an absolute living Hades because you feel like nobody stinking cares, even though they see you floundering, even though they see you falling apart, even though they see the pressure mounting. You good is a common human courtesy that disciples should be able to offer. Can I say that again? You good is a common human courtesy that disciples should be able to offer. If you're taking notes, write this down. To see brokenness and do nothing is a sign of deeply rooted selfishness. 
To see brokenness and do nothing is a sign of deeply rooted selfishness. Now, just for the record, you don't have the time to help everybody, but you absolutely should have the time to help someone if the Spirit kicks you in the gut. If you see someone, if the Spirit has allowed you to see someone, then you have time to do something. Jesus gives the example of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. Remember the Good Samaritan story? It says that a man is left naked and, ble- ble- naked and bleeding on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Do you remember the story? Jerusalem to Jericho is important because that is I-95 of the ancient world. He's not just naked and bleeding on some backwoods farm to market road. He is naked and bleeding in the middle of the highway, Jerusalem to Jericho. And there he is, naked and bleeding, undeniable. You cannot not see him. He is clearly in need. And it says that the first two characters in the story, a Levite and a priest, both professional God believers, see him and then pass by on the other side. They find a way not to initiate contact. But then a Samaritan sees him and then, noticing the need, puts him up on his own donkey and then takes him to safety. Jesus then says, which one of these was a neighbor to him? It's not just about genuinely seeing the world around you. That's where it starts. But then you've got to have the guts to initiate contact. I've told you this story before, but it bears repeating. So back in the day, I worked... As the intern of pastoral care at First Baptist Church in Lubbock, Texas, and there was a young man who was playing football for a small community. Young man's name was Jeremy. Jeremy went to make a tackle. He dropped his head too low, hit and broke his neck. Jeremy's 17 years old. He's in the hospital. I'm 21, working as an intern, and Jeremy wouldn't talk to anybody. He was understandably very, very scared because of what had happened. So back in the day, my boss came to me and said, is there any way you could go and visit Jeremy in ICU? And he said, maybe, just maybe, he'll talk to you. Now, I'd never been to ICU alone before, and so I was very nervous. Plus, some of you have this feeling, when you go to hospitals and you're young, sometimes you can have this feeling like a sense of your own mortality when you go into the hospital because it's, again, all the tubes and all the wires and the noises, everything's foreign. I've gotten to where I'm actually pretty at home there now because I've done ministry there for years and years. But in the beginning, I was so afraid My pastor told me, he said, you have one job. Ask him if you can pray for him at the end of the visit. So I go in, but I go in in my snow globe. I was not interacting with him. I was interacting with my world. And so I went in going, I don't want to screw this up. My boss has trusted me with my first visit all by myself. I don't want to mess this up. I don't want to screw this up, so I'm in my snow globe. Not just that. I was sitting there going, oh, those noises scare me. Those noises are, are, are make me nervous. Oh, I don't know about this. I just don't want to mess up. And then when I walk in, Jeremy's got a feeding tube down his throat, and he is pouring saliva down the side of his face. When I see him, his eyes are big as saucers, and I was just so afraid. And in my snow globe... So much so I walk up to him, and the first statement I say is, hey, Jeremy, how's, your da- or how, how, how's it going? Well, how foolish is that question? For two reasons. Number one, he just broke his neck. How do you think he's doing? And second, he's got a feeding tube down his throat. He can't say anything. So at that moment, he looks at me like, you're an idiot, okay? <laughs> his eyes are big as saucers with the drool coming down the side, with saliva coming down the side. So I then say to him, yes or no questions, but I'm snow globing it. It's all about me. It's all about how I feel. And he can sense that. So he nods, yes, shakes his head, no. Then finally, after feeling awkward for a few minutes, I just go, Jeremy, can I pray for you before I go? 
before I run out of this room, can I pray for you? And he shook his head no. At that point, I was as deep in selfishness as I'd been this whole story. I'm sitting there going, oh, I ruined it. I couldn't even pray. I've ruined it. My boss is going to be upset. He's going to ask me how this happened. I'm just, and all of a sudden, I had a moment where I saw through the snow globe and I stepped outside and all of a sudden it was, Jeremy, do you need the nurse? The saliva had pulled on the side. His eyes were big as saucers and he looked distressed when I really saw him. I walk outside to get the nurse. Or excuse me, I say, do you need the nurse? He nods as big as he has that entire time. I run outside to get the nurse. And when I do, she comes in and she goes, oh my goodness, his feeding tube had backed up. He was drowning right there in front of me. She runs in the other room. They reset him in about five seconds. And I looked at him and I said, you've been trying to tell me that since I walked in the room. And he nods as big as he possibly could. I couldn't see him. I didn't genuinely see him. I was even there trying to initiate contact, but I wasn't really there. We've got to fully engage with the world around us, see them the way that God see them, and then be the hands and feet of Christ to them in the same way that Christ came to us. But there's one last point, and we'll be done today. By the way, it addresses this question, are you being a good neighbor? Are you being a good neighbor? <laughs> now look at Genesis chapter 40, verse 8, and we'll close. So again, he looks at them and says, you good? Verse eight, we both had dreams, they answered, but there's no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, look at this, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. Underline and highlight, tell me your dreams. I love this. It starts off, how do we go about putting others before ourselves? Number one, we must genuinely see people. Number two, we must initiate interaction. And number three, we must hear their story. We must hear their story. In this passage, not only does he see these men and notice a change in the pattern, he also goes to them, says, you good? I'm inviting you to invite me into your world. And then all of a sudden they come back and they go, oh, you don't know the half of it. You don't know how awful this situation is. We both had dreams that are clearly from a God that we don't know or understand, and we don't know what we're supposed to do here. And all of a sudden, I love it, because he comes in as the disciple and goes, Yahweh's the one who provides visions for the dreams. He doesn't say, I've got your answers. He looks at them and says, I'm a big neon sign pointing to God. God has the answers to your questions. Why don't you just start telling me your story? If you don't take anything else away from today, take this. Are you ready? Write this down. So much of the Holy Spirit's specific leading will unfold in the course of hearing a person's story. Let me say that again. So much of the Holy Spirit's specific leading will unfold in the course of hearing a person's story. There are some of you in this room that the way you are right now, you get so stressed over things. Have you ever done this before? You sit there and you're like, oh, my life's falling apart. I feel like everything's going away and I just have so many things on me and you just feel weight after weight after weight and all of a sudden you're just like, oh, what do I do? What do I do? I feel like my head is spinning. I feel like my world is falling apart. There's just so many things happening. Have you ever had that feeling before? And then... You stop and you write down what it is that's bothering you and it's like three things. You ever had that happen before? And you're like, oh, I just feel like I, there's so much happening. There's so much swirling. And it's like, okay, make a list. Da, da. Well, it was only three things. It wasn't a billion. It wasn't a million. It wasn't even a hundred. It's three things that were bothering me to the point that I wanted to throw in the stinking towel. 
When you hear a person's story, you allow them to unburden, and in a lot of cases, they find freedom in Christ because you stopped just to listen and help them sift through what they were navigating. I had a moment in my life that that happened. I'm not proud of this, but there was a stretch in my life where I felt so burdened. My senior year in college, I almost dropped out of school. My grades were great. I just felt so overwhelmed by life and a whole bunch of things that were happening. And I'll never forget, my dad saw me and noticed a genuine change. He then made the initiative and said, son, I'm driving through town, I'm driving through Stillwater, and you and I need to have a meeting. I'm worried about you. I had not told him I was thinking of leaving school, but he began to notice the change in the pattern of my life. So then I said, well, dad, I can't. I'm so busy. I'm at class or I'm working at Red Lobster all the time. (laughs) He goes, well, how about this, son? He goes, across the street from Red Lobster is a little restaurant called Mexico Joe's, okay? Some of you have been to Stillwater, Eskimo Joe's, kind of the famous restaurant. Dylan, I see you back there, Dylan and Ashton. You guys know how it rolls, okay? So Eskimo Joe's is the famous restaurant. Mexico Joe's is the Tex-Mex version, okay? And it was right across the street from Red Lobster, okay? So dad says, how about this? He goes, whatever time you get off your shift, he says, walk across the street. We'll have some enchiladas. And he said, I want to hear your story. I said, Dad, you don't have enough time. (laughs) He said, why don't you try me? Now listen, some of you are going to hear yourself in this story. Your problems are not so extensive that you can't walk through them in an hour, I promise you. So I go in, and my dad pulls out a blue rollerball pin, and he grabs a cocktail napkin there at the restaurant. And he goes, son, he puts a number one and circles it, And he said, tell me your first problem. And I said, Dad, it's going to take a really long time. He goes, just start at the top. He said, what's your first problem? And I told him my first problem. He said, okay, tell me your second problem. Told him the second problem. It listed eight things. Eight things. And by the time I got to the end of it, I was like, surely there are more (laughs) than eight things. But it wasn't. It was eight things. And then dad said, well, that took an hour. He said, I got 30 more minutes for you. He said, son, he goes, I'm not going to tell you what to do. He was a brilliant man. He said, I'm not going to tell you what to do. But he said, if this is your first problem, you have a choice to make. And then he put bullet points underneath it. You either need to do this or this. And then he went to the second one and said, son, here's your problem here. You either need to do this or this. And then we went all the way down through the bottom. And all of a sudden, I was sitting there going, my life is not falling apart. I don't have to drop out of school. I can do all of this. I can navigate these things. And there are some clear areas where the Lord is speaking to me right now that need change. He then looks at me at the end. He tosses me the napkin with half-eaten enchilada on it. And he says, I think you know what you need to do. I still have it. Did you know, Autumn, this year for Christmas, she said, I think we ought to get that crusty napkin framed so that you can remember that the Lord is with you and it's not so bad. There are some of you in this room who need to unburden. And I'm not downplaying that today, but please don't miss this. Some of you need to listen to someone else and let them unburden. If today what you heard was, I need to unburden with somebody, you missed it. Step out of your snow globe. 
Listen to someone else. And then all of a sudden, the world will become a very, very different place. There's some of you that simple principle could save your marriage. That simple principle could save your roommate situation. That simple principle could change your work environment and take a job from Hades and turn it into a real peach of a job. I promise you. It begs our final question today. Do you really listen to anyone? Do you really listen to anyone? Or are you somebody that's all about you? I love you guys. Thank you for listening today. And we were crammed in like sardines. I need some of you to go to a different church service next week, okay? (laughs) Now listen, I love you. See people. Thank you, Eddie. See people. Engage with them. And then listen to them. And we could see this world a very different place. Let's bow our heads for prayer. With every head bowed and every eye closed, nobody looking around but just me, you're not gonna believe this, but we are on time today, okay? <laughs> that means we got a whole song of invitation. So don't tune out the best part of the service in these next few moments. With everyone's heads bowed and everyone's eyes closed, nobody looking around but just me. We call this our time of reflection. Nothing mystical or magical about this time, but it's a chance for us to stop and to process how we're different because of the songs we've sung, the sermon we've heard, and specifically the scripture that we've read. With nobody looking around but just me, is there anyone here today that would say, Zach, would you pray for me? I see people, but I don't really see people. With nobody looking around but just me, maybe you've had some of those moments just like I did with the woman in the head covering up against the wall where you look back and you go, man, I missed it. But I don't want to miss it anymore. I want to see people the way Jesus saw people, with compassion. With nobody looking but just me, if you're here and you'd say, Zach, pray for me, would you pray I'd see people with the eyes of the Father? If that's you, if you would just lift your hand where you are right now. Thank you. Thank you, so many of you. Y'all can put your hands down. I'm going to pray for you, but your prayer is very simple. This is between you and God. Just say this simple prayer. God, open my eyes to see what you see. God, open my eyes to see what you see. Second, maybe there are some of you here that would say, Zach, would you pray for me? I see people, but it's time that I initiate contact with them. It's time that I use you good. It's time I go to them and ask what it is that they're navigating with nobody looking around but just me. If you're here and you say, Zach, pray for me. There is someone in my life I need to go to and say, you good. I need to invite them to invite me into their snow globe. With nobody looking but just me, if that's you, if you would just lift your hand where you are right now. Ready, set, go. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Y'all can put your hands down. That's the Holy Spirit's leading. If that's you, your prayer is very simple. Just pray this. God, yes, I'll do it. God, yes, I'll do it. And then before the sun goes down today, make your plan of action so that you can go and initiate contact with them. And then last but not least, maybe there are some of you here that would say, Zach, pray for me. There's somebody in my life and I need to give them an hour and a half. There's somebody in my life and I need to not just see them and initiate contact. I need to really take time and hear them. Maybe even with a cocktail napkin and a blue rollerball pen. With nobody looking but just me, if that's you, if you would just indicate so by lifting your hand where you are. Ready, set, go. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Y'all can put your hands down. 
Just for the record, if that many people did this that raised their hand in this room, this will be a different world next week. I want to encourage you, say yes to the Spirit. I'll do it. And before the sun goes down, put that plan together to go with them and create that margin in your life so that you can give them that hour and a half. I'm going to pray for us and then we'll stand. Father, thank you for this day and for your blessings in it. Thank you for the chance that we've had to study your word. Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ that for anyone here who is desiring to see people the way you see them, I pray that you would give them what they seek. Lift the veil from their eyes. Let them see their fellow man and the need that is right there in front of them. Lord, I pray for those asking for courage today to initiate the interaction. I pray that you would give them a double portion of courage and strength as they go and they act on your behalf. And Lord, I pray for those who are here today who have imparted on their heart that they need to listen to someone else's story. Speak powerfully to them in these moments. And God, I pray that you would help them to create margin, to initiate that contact, and then, Lord, that you would change our world accordingly. Thank you for Joseph's example. And Lord, thank you that we get to be your hands and feet to this world. It's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.